All right, let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we are so grateful to you for your kindness toward us, your patience with us, and uh, I'm thankful that you uh, brought me out of darkness into the light, and I'm grateful to you for my brothers and sisters here, and I pray that you continue to uh, provide for their needs through your word, Lord. Help uh, bring conviction to them where they may be struggling. Help grow them through your word and through fellowship with your people. I'm thankful to you for this place. I'm thankful to you for my brother about to preach. I pray that you would be with him. Give him the words to say. Help him to use the sword uh, to uh, bring conviction on us. And that we may uh, grow from this sermon and listen to it with uh, ears and heart wide open. And that we would receive it. And grow from it, Lord. Uh, thank you so much. Be with my brother today and be with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 34 through 41. John chapter 12, verses 34 through 41. Jesus had just finished predicting his own death, and now as he predicts his death, the people raise a problem, or really a question, but it's a problem for them. That's in verse 34. Then Jesus gives them a warning, verse 35, a command, verse 36, and then we have a prophecy fulfilled in the response of the people, verses 37 through 41. But let me read the verses. I'll go over that outline a couple of times, <clears throat> and uh, we'll get right into the text. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. 
These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Amen. So first, the problem. The people raise this question because they have a problem with what Jesus has been teaching. Particularly, if you would, look back with me at uh, beginning at verse 30. Jesus said, this voice, a voice that came from heaven, did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying what type of, what death he would die, or what type of death he would die. You know, Jesus had been repeating this throughout his ministry, and particularly here, if you take a, a, just a cursory review of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, beginning at 14, verse 14, he says, and Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So very, very early in the gospel of John, as Jesus is preaching, he's telling them he's going to be lifted up. In other words, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be lifted up from the earth in his crucifixion. In John eight twenty eight, he says, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me, I speak these things. So he's been teaching the people that he's going to die. And these Jews in particular, they pick up on this. They understand that exactly what he is saying. And you see it in their question. We heard that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up? The Christ is supposed to remain forever. Who is this Son of Man? Where do they get this idea First, that the Christ remains forever. And if you look at their question, they understand the Christ and the Son of Man to be two separate people. So first, the, the Christ, remember, Christ is the Messiah. So the anticipated Son of David that was coming into the world. That's who the Messiah is. He's the Christ, God's anointed one. This entire context fits this perfectly because remember this is where the triumphant uh, the, the excuse me the triumphal entry takes place. So back at verse twelve, remember Jesus comes into the city. Verse thirteen, everybody's screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So the people were declaring him their King, the Messiah. In other words, the Messiah. And God had given a promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, he said to David, remember, if you remember that entire context, David wanted to build God a house. So he goes to Nathan the prophet, and he says, Nathan, I, you know, God is, you know, we're lugging him around in this tent thing. I want to build him a permanent structure, something, something uh, final, a, a dwelling place for God. And God, uh, and the prophet says, go ahead and do it. And then God appears to the prophet and says, no, he, David will not build my house, but I'm going to build him a house. And what he means by this is a, a kingdom. And in 2 Samuel 7, 13, God says, he shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now there are other passages that are related to this, but in establishing his kingdom forever, the thought had been that the Messiah would rule forever. Whenever the Messiah came on the earth, his rule would extend to the end of the world. That is the way that the Jews read the Old Testament. So this issue now that Jesus is raising, that he's going to die, remember also, this sort of puts a stumbling block before Peter. Because when Jesus, when he confesses, he says, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter answers rightly, you're the Christ, the Son of God, or you're the Messiah. And then Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to die. And Peter says, no. There's no way that you can die. Now, granted, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Jesus rebukes him and calls him the devil, right? Get behind me, Satan. But his confusion was this uh, similar confusion to the one that these Jews had. Wait a minute. The Messiah is supposed to live forever. Why is it now? Who, what is going on here? Are you not the Messiah? And who is the Son of Man? George Eldon Ladd, in his book, The Final Things, he has this section. It's I, I've... Uh, I've summarized some of it here, but listen to what he says here. This is really helpful. There are three messianic personages in the Old Testament which stand side by side with no indication of how they relate to each other. So here we see two, right, in our context, but actually there's a third in our context that is not stated. And he's going to give us the three here. The first is the Davidic king. In the New Testament, he is called the Messiah, the Christ, or the Anointed One. All those terms mean the same thing. Christ, Messiah, Anointed One. And literally, it's Anointed One, because the king would be anointed for his office. And the oil that was poured on him was a symbol that the Spirit was with him to rule and to lead God's people. The Anointed One, this Messiah, is the heir to the throne of David. And he is vividly depicted in Isaiah 11. Let's just turn there and read that briefly just so you can have a a place in the Bible where um, you can see this in Isaiah chapter 11. And I'll begin reading from verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist." 
So this is a description, and the chapter goes on to con- uh, to continue to describe his reign and his rule over not only God's people, but all of the earth. As the waters cover the sea, there will be not the knowledge of God because the Messiah will rule and reign. So this is one of the personages, is the Messiah. The second is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is described... We'll look at this from Daniel chapter 7. But he is described as a heavenly, pre-existent, supernatural figure. He is divine, in other words. He is divine. So the, the, the Messiah was a son of David. But he wasn't divine, at least the way the Jews understood it. But this son of man, the way that he's described in Daniel, he appears to be a divine figure. So Daniel chapter 7. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Daniel 7 beginning at verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As the rest of the beast, as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before the throne. The Ancient of Days, of course, is God the Father. And this Son of Man, he's coming to the Ancient of Days, and he's being brought into his presence on clouds. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So you have this second messianic kind of figure. First, the Messiah. Second, the Son of Man. But third, what's the third one? Can anybody think of what the third one is? It's the suffering servant. The suffering servant is a third one. There is a third personage, person, personage in the Old Testament who carries a messianic dimension, and it's the suffering servant. He's in Isaiah chapter 53. So let's turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, and here's a description of this third figure. So the Messiah, the Son of Man, and the suffering servant. And I'll I'll begin reading from chapter 52, verse 13, because really that's where this section starts. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths at him. 
For what had not been told them, they shall see. And, they, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. And that, that, doesn't that sound so much like Paul, that what no eye has seen or no ear has heard, God has revealed to those who love him? And Paul, Paul preaches from Isaiah all the time in his epistles. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I'll stop there. But you see, these three personages in the mind of the Jews, at least in Jesus' day, were three separate figures. And sometimes even the Messiah was, was well, at least these three figures, they were three separate figures. But when Jesus comes into the world, he is the fulfillment of all of these three offices. And the Jews don't quite understand how to put this together. His own disciples don't understand how to put it together. But Jesus is bringing it together. And John, in particular, the gospel writer, is bringing these things together for us. Note, uh, turn back to John. Turn back to John chapter 12. And notice what he does here. So Christ is talking about his death. He's going to be lifted up. And then they, they ask the question in, in uh, verse 34. Excuse me. Yes, they ask the question. The Christ remains forever. Who is this son of man? But now when John talks about the prophecy that is being fulfilled in the unbelief of the Jews, look at what text he goes to. Look at verse 34 that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Where did we just read that? Isaiah 53, verse 1. So John, the gospel writer, as he writes his gospel, he sort of brings, theologically, he brings together these three personages. This, the Messiah is the Son of Man, which is the suffering servant. These three are one. And the way that George Eldon Ladd puts it very helpfully, he writes, the Son of Man must appear on earth before he comes in glory. And his earthly mission was fulfilled in the role of the suffering servant. That's what he does. So the Messiah is the Son of Man who must suffer before he reigns in glory. And that text from 1 Peter that I cited several weeks in a row now, Christ comes to suffer and then he enters into his glory. And the Jews, they didn't get it. They, they couldn't put that together. Now, um, if you are uncertain, let's say you, you, know, you read your Bible and you think to yourself, I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't understand. What kind of disposition should you have? This, the way that they ask this question, of course, is very antagonistic. But what disposition should we have as God's people? We should be Bereans. Right? They should have just asked Jesus, hey, can you just give us a Bible study? Because we're very confused. But you should be Bereans, right? The Bereans in Acts chapter 17, what set them apart from the other people was that uh, the way that Luke writes it is that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness 
and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And that's really what y'all should be doing. You know, as, as you hear me preach, you shouldn't just be taking what I'm saying as the very word of God. You should be searching into these things and considering them and ruminating and, and you know, writing notes and, and just thinking about how to bring these things together. That is the Berean spirit, and that's the spirit that they should have had. It shouldn't have been uh, so much a conflict or a problem. And Jesus answers them, though, the way that they respond to him. He answers in turn. So they raise this problem, and Jesus doesn't answer Jesus doesn't tell them, oh, well, the problem is that you guys don't understand that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of Man, and I'm the suffering servant. Listen to what he says to them in verse 35. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And as we saw these themes before in the Gospel of John, this light and darkness is that Jesus comes to reveal, to fully give light to what the Old Testament was teaching. That's part of what he's saying here. He comes into the world as light and is a, and in a sense for the Jewish people in particular. In this context here, he is shining light upon what the Old Testament promised. And he even does that, of course, for us today. He continues to do that, to shed light upon us so that we might understand the Bible rightfully. So instead of giving them a straightforward answer, what, what does he do? He answers them cryptically in a, in a hidden way. Walk in the light is what he says to them. Continue to follow me. But there's a warning here, of course. He says, while, uh, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And that, there is a warning, of course, particularly for the Jews, because now Jesus is going to be crucified. And after he's crucified, there's, you know, there's not very many that follow him out of this Jewish nation. So, of course, there's a warning here. But that warning carries over for us today. We have to remember that there is coming a day of judgment. Look, you can have questions, right? Uncertainty. I'm not certain, right? I'm not certain um, uh, how Jesus' life and his, his death and his resurrection and what that means for me personally. I don't, I don't quite understand it. I can't put that together. I don't understand how the Father can be God, the Son can be God, and the Spirit can be God, but there's only one God. I don't understand those things. Right? They're not clear to, my, to me. I don't know, I don't, I don't even, maybe, maybe you don't understand what the new birth is, what it means to be born again, or uh, in other words, what it means to be a Christian. You may not understand what faith is, what repentance is. You may not understand these things. But what do you do? Well, go to the scriptures. The thing to do is not to say, well, you know, I'm just going to leave my Bible on the shelf and live my life however I want. No, your responsibility then is to engage the scriptures even more and particularly to do that in the context of a local church where there are people who are desiring to obey God. That's how you do it. You continue to pursue those things, these things. You continue, as Jesus says, to walk in the light. And of course, we don't have Jesus walking around with us today, but there sure is a lot of light in this book. 
because the warning stands. Listen to the way that uh, Paul puts it in Romans chapter 2. He says, beginning at verse 3, he says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing, practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or, you, or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, right? They don't walk in the light, Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. That means everybody. This is the way the kind of the Jews viewed the world. There were the Jewish people and then everybody else. And what Paul is saying in Romans is that to the Jew and to everybody else, everybody falls under this category. If you are not walking in the light of God's word, you are under the judgment of God. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Those kinds of warnings continues to stand even today. So they raise a problem, Jesus warns them, and then he gives them a command in verse 36. Note the command. While you have the light, believe in the light. Not only walk in it, but believe in it. And you know... Um, Today is is actually a national Christian holiday. You didn't know that. It's Reformation Day. And a lot of churches will, will celebrate the Reformation in some way or another. But one of the issues that was vital for the Reformation, so one of the reasons we're not Roman Catholic has to do with the entire issue, with the issue of faith. What it actually means to believe. And um, um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a number of things to you that I, that I found helpful. So when Jesus says this, believe in the light, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by believe? Of course, he's talking about believing in him, believing in the things that he's revealed, believing the word of God. I think he means all these things. I just think it's one thing. And if you believe in him, you can be made righteous. You can have a, in other words, you can have a right standing with God by believing in Christ. So in the Heidelberg Catechism, they ask this question. Why do you say that you are righteous by faith alone? The Roman Catholics don't say that. But Protestants do. Not because I please God by virtue of of the worthiness of my faith. You see, it's not, faith is not a work that merits something from God. I don't believe God and earn salvation by faith. That's not how faith works. But because the satisfaction, righteousness, and by satisfaction it, it means, they mean the price that Jesus paid. He satisfied a debt. 
that his people had because of their sin. So by the satisfaction or because of the satisfaction, the righteousness, his perfect life, according to God's law, and holiness, his moral purity and perfection, satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ alone are my righteousness before God. And because I can accept it and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. What faith does is it receives the gift of eternal life. And what Jesus is saying to these Jews is receive these things that I am revealing to you, that I'm telling you, believe them, trust in them, hold on to them. In the Belgic Confession, speaking of this whole issue of faith, they write this, we do not mean, properly speaking, that it is faith itself that justifies us. Faith doesn't justify. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ as our righteousness. And what Jesus is telling these Jews, he's saying, embrace me, believe in me, trust in me alone for your salvation. That is the command that he gives them. That's the command. Believe in me. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But now you have a prophecy fulfilled. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question. When, when God prophesied that he would send the suffering servant into the world, he did not expect a universal repentance. He did not expect many to believe in his son. He knew who would believe in him. So the, the rhetorical question, these two rhetorical questions, Lord, who has believed our report? You could answer, not very many. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Only to those who believe Therefore, they could not believe. Listen to this. This this is highly offensive to many. They could not believe because Isaiah said again, their lack of faith is, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. These are the doctrines that are detestable to man. Passages in the Bible that that make salvation uh, the prerogative of God, that put our eternal souls in the hands of God. Men do not like to deal with a God who's that big. They want a God they can put in their pocket. Right? He's not going to tell me what to do. You know, uh, on Sunday he can tell me what to do, so I'll go to church. But then after that, I'm going to take him. You know, fold him up put them in my wallet, stick them in my back pocket. And then from the point in time I leave church until the time I get back to church, I'm going to live and do whatever I want. But that's not the God of the Bible. He has blinded their hearts, their eyes, excuse me, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes 
lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So when we read these passages in the, in the, in the Gospels, of course, there is a very true sense where our heart should go out to these men and women who are blind. And even today, when we're preaching the Gospel with family members, with friends, with people we don't know, we get an opportunity, the Lord opens a door, and we proclaim the Gospel to them, and they don't believe those things. Yes, there's a very true sense where we ought to be brokenhearted, and we ought to pray, right? We should have that same attitude that uh, that Paul has in Romans, right? Well, um, how does he say it? In Romans 9, speaking of his countrymen, the Jews, what does he say? He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Right? That's how he feels. That's the disposition of his heart and his desire. But ultimately, what we have to do is we can't fault God. We must place these things ultimately in his hands. These things, Isaiah said, when he saw his glory and spoke of them. Excuse me, or, and spoke of him. So the prophecy and the application of that prophecy is very clear. Um, and it's this. We ought not to take the Lord lightly. When God in his word calls men to believe, he calls them to faith, he calls them to repentance. Our responsibility is to heed his warnings and obey his commands. And this passage in particular, the warning is, take heed to the word and believe in Christ. So brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let's uh, pray, let's sing the doxology, and remember we have a members, members meeting. All right, so don't, don't try to escape. <laughs> Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to, to uh, study the word this morning. We ask that you would please use these things, Lord, to help us as your people to be diligent students of the word. Help us, Lord, to walk in the light and to believe the light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, please stand and let's sing.